the book of Romans, chapter 10 today in your Bible. If you would take your Bible and open it there, and then stand with me as we read God's Word together. Romans, chapter 10 today in your Bible. I will begin reading. I'll begin reading in verse number 9. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. I hope you will follow with me. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me read that one again. Millions of people have come to Christ from that one verse. Whosoever, that's anybody here, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, according to that verse, I'm not much to look at, but I have beautiful feet. Amen. (laughs) That's what it says. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you, and you may be seated. Question. Answered in your mind and in your heart. What is your heart's desire? What is your heart's desire? A heart's desire would be the thing I believe that you would want most in life. What is it that you dream about, think about, aspire to? Your heart's desire. Is it a person? Well, some, to some people it would be. Boy, if I could just marry that man or that woman, if I could just uh, get to know and love that person, oh, that would fill the void in my heart. And so their heart's desire is a person. With others, it would be a position. If I could just be the CEO, if I could just be a certain position in life that I aspire to, if I could be the, the senator from South Carolina or whatever your aspiration may include, I, my heart's desire would be a person in that case. With others, it would be a possession. Well, I'd like to have that car. I'd like that house. I'd like that piece of land. Oh, if I could just own that, that farm nestled down there on the river somewhere. And different people would answer that in different ways. 
What is your heart's desire? That thing you aspire to, that thing that you want most in your life. Well, Paul tells us what his heart's desire is. Go back, if you will, to verse number one here. Verse number one, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. The apostle Paul said, my heart's desire is the salvation of my fellow countrymen, the people that I know, my fellow Jews, the people of Israel. I want them to come to Christ. I want them to know the Lord. Now, in verse 2 and 3, he describes their condition. And look in your Bible and follow with me as we look at this. First of all, in verse number 2, he says they have a zeal for God. They are religious people. They go to church regularly. They keep all the ordinances. They believe in the law of God. They even seek to keep it. But he said they have zeal. They have religious enthusiasm, but they're not saved. They're moral people. They're good people. They'd be wonderful people to live beside and be your neighbor. Oh, you'd like them, but when it comes to their personal salvation, they're lost. They are. They have zeal and enthusiasm, but they don't have knowledge, according to verse 3. He says they're ignorant of spiritual matters because they are They think that they can work their way to heaven. They think they can become righteous by doing righteous works and righteous deeds. And in verse number 3, at the very end of it, he says, but they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. They're trying to earn righteousness by what they do rather than obedience to the commandment of the Lord in salvation as regards salvation. Here's something I'd like for you to write down in your Bible. If you haven't already done so, I've used it through the years, but I don't want you to miss this one. It's a little phrase that I picked up. I think it was from Adrian Rogers. And man, it just nails the whole thing. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous, the people who can manage to live a righteous life. Salvation is a gift for those of us who will say, I'm guilty. I don't deserve it. Like the grace you heard the men, the quartet singing about, and the grace that the choir just sung about. No, I'm not righteous. I am guilty. But salvation is the gift that God has for guilty people. Now, If you'll go back to the passage that I read to you in verses 9 through 17, I want you to start there in verse 15 with me, and I'm going to take some verbs here, and I'm going to organize them in a reverse order. In verse 15, you'll see the word sent. How shall they preach except they be sent? And then he says, how shall they hear without a preacher? And then he said, how shall they believe if they haven't heard? And then he says, how shall they believe unless they have been, or if they believe, then they must call upon the name of the Lord. And, I, and so what we have here is a list of five steps that precede salvation. 
In other words, what must happen before people can be saved? What are the necessary steps that must occur before a person can ever come to Christ? And I observed here that our pulpit stairs are five in number here. And so I'm standing down here on this one. And this one represents people being sent. And then this one right here is after they're sent, somebody has to preach. And then when they preach, somebody has to hear. And then the next step to salvation is after people hear, then they must believe. And if they believe, then they are to call upon the name of the Lord a sequence of steps that you find listed here that prepare the heart and that bring people to salvation. What must people do in order to be saved? And first of all, according to verse 15, somebody must be sent. Somebody must be sent. Now hold your hand in Romans and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 52, because verse 14 and 15, or verse 15 specifically, is a quote from the Old Testament. So much of the New Testament consists of quotes from the Old Testament, doesn't it? And in Isaiah chapter number 52 and verse number 7, Isaiah 52 and 7, do you have it? I'll give you a minute because I want you to turn there. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse, an important verse of Scripture. How It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. Now, you see, Paul was quoting this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith and design, thy God reigneth. Now, what is he saying here? The backdrop of this passage is this, that a messenger is running from a battlefield somewhere in the ancient times, and he's coming over the mountains, and as he approaches his home in Israel, he's bringing a message to the people of Israel. He's going to deliver the news of a great victory that has been wrought. A great, great battle has been fought, and the Jewish people have been victorious. And the Bible says his feet are beautiful. It's, it's just sort of a metaphor for the fact that those feet that have run across those mountains and from that battlefield are bringing wonderful good news to the people of God. And he has a wonderful message. His feet, feet are beautiful because he's carrying the message of Almighty God. It's just a beautiful sort of poetic type of way of stating that. And so before people can be Save, Paul picks up on that theme, there has to be the messenger. There has to be someone who is sent. And I don't know how it was in your salvation. It might have been several of these people. But, for example, do you know that one of the meanings of the word missionary is one who is sent, one who is sent to another country, one who is sent to another culture? And so we think of missionaries as people who have been sent. We think of preachers. The preacher is sent to bring a message. We think of our Sunday school teachers. And you attended your Sunday school class this morning, I trust, and you heard the message. 
the message as described, perhaps even right here. Or maybe it was just a friend in your case when you came to know Christ. That someone began to work with you who loved the Lord. They began to witness to you. They began to share the gospel of Christ. And over a period of time, you heard that and you believed. Maybe it was somebody who did a Bible study with you. There's all different ways in which people are sent. But here's what I want you to see. It's not just the preachers that are sent. It is every one of us, the people listening to me here in this church. If you're a member here, if you love the Lord, if you're a believer in Christ, you are one of the sent ones. You are one of the sent ones. The Lord has sent you. Before anybody can be saved, somebody must be sent. Number two, look in verse 15. And then before people can be saved, someone must preach. Someone must preach. Now, let me correct a thought. The word preach to you means me standing here in the pulpit and teaching and preaching and proclaiming the Word of God. And uh, you come so faithfully, many of you, and you hear me preach. But you know what? In the Bible, it's a much broader term. It doesn't envision a man standing behind a pulpit. It has the idea of proclamation, of proclaiming. So to preach in the Bible, it means that you or your Sunday school teacher or anybody in this building, any Christian in this building, we proclaim the gospel. And when we proclaim it, we're preaching it. So in effect, any one of us has that call to preach the gospel of Christ, to proclaim it. And so it has the idea of even publishing the gospel. In the book of Acts, it talks about publishing the gospel and So it could be a tract, it could be a book, it could be a radio or a TV program through which we preach. It could even be social media, you giving the gospel and sharing your testimony with people on a social media site. It could be the Sunday school class. It's a whole broad idea of witnessing, but somebody, whether we're standing behind a pulpit, which, by the way, is God's preferred way of people hearing the gospel. Did you know that? I think today we have so put down and minimized preaching in our culture today that uh, our young men don't aspire to preach anymore, and we hear all these, these negatives about preaching. But the reality is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Bible very clearly says that God's preferred way of people hearing the gospel is to listen to a preacher. And throughout history, he's called men, and he's asked them to go out and to proclaim, to publish, to herald the gospel of Jesus Christ. So before people can be saved, someone must be sent. Whether it be an individual or a pastor or a missionary, a book or a tract, whatever it may be, the message must be gotten out. Number two, then somebody must preach. It's got to be heralded. It's got to be uh, proclaimed. And what is the message? Well, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 52 there for just a moment, there are four things that he says. He says the message is one of peace. And today, my message to you this morning is one of peace. Do you know that? I'm not talking about world peace. I'm talking about that you can have peace with God. Whoever you are sitting here this morning, You can have peace in your heart with God. You can lay your head on the pillow tonight, and you can go to sleep with a sense of peace, a sense of calm, 
a sense that if the Lord calls me home and before the sun comes up in the morning, I'm called into the presence of God, then God will accept me. Peace, peace, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The second part of that message is, if you'll notice there, good tidings. The idea of it's a joyful message that we give to people. It's a message that God loves you. I've already prayed that this morning. Now let me proclaim that this morning. There's not a person in this house that God doesn't love. There's not anybody here that can do anything that would make God love you more. There's not anybody here that can do anything that will make God love you less. You could commit the most heinous sin, and yet God will love you because he doesn't love you for who you are. He loves you for who he is, and he is love, and he never, ever changes in his love to us. And so there must be somebody sent, and when the person is sent, they must proclaim a message. They must preach. And what do they preach? They preach that people can have peace with God. Every person can have peace with God. We preach that God loves us, that he accepts every single human being. The third thing the verse says is the message contains the message of salvation. Boy, I don't apologize one bit for almost every Sunday that I stand behind this pulpit sharing the gospel of Christ and telling people how they can be saved. I've had so many people write me through the years from the television ministry, and so many people talk to me and tell me, I don't hear the plan of salvation preached in my church. I don't hear people get up and talk about the details of salvation. So I hear people say we ought to be saved. We're told that God loves us. But we're never told how specifically we can know that our sins are forgiven and know that we can be forgiven of every past sin to know that there is deliverance from our sin possible in the future. I'm not being told that, preacher. And it's so refreshing when I hear the preacher preach that. I want to hear that when I come to church. I want to know that there is an answer to my guilt, that it can be lifted from my shoulders, that God can accept me. And then there's one other thing there. At the end of that verse, it said that our God reigns. We have a little chorus we sing sometimes. Our God reigns. It's the only words in the song. We sing it over and over. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. But I'll tell you, you can't say that too much in the world of today. That while we sit here this morning and we hear the news and it looks like the whole world is melting down in disintegration and chaos... God is in control. God reigns in the heavens. And that though we may think everything is falling apart, it really isn't. Our Lord is in charge. He is right on time, isn't he? And so that's our message. Before people can be saved, someone must be sent. And before and, and after the person is sent, then someone must preach. And what is, what is the message there to preach? There to preach, you can have peace with God. You can have joy in your life. You can have salvation, deliverance from sin, forgiveness of sin, free and clear. You can rest your head on your pillow at night knowing that God is in charge. He is in control, that the world is not spinning out of control into disintegration, that God has a plan for both the world 
and for your life and for my life. So we got to begin with somebody being sent. And then the next step is that person that's sent has got to preach. They got to proclaim it. And then the next step is people have to hear. Now, up until now, my first two points are about the, the person who's going to proclaim, the, the, the preacher, the proclaimer. But now I switch it to you. It's not about me proclaiming, it's about you. Someone must hear. Someone must hear. Did you ever notice in the Bible how many times Jesus said, he that hath ears, let him what? Hear. Why would he say anything like that? That's really strange, isn't it? If you have ears, I want you to hear. How many of y'all have ears? That's okay. You don't have to raise your hand. What Jesus was saying, I want you to listen to me when I speak to you. I want you to listen. I want you to listen deeply. I want you to listen in a way that you're really trying to engage your mind. I want you to break out of your half-hearted listening I want you to quit playing with your phone. I want you to stop thinking about your schedule tomorrow or what happened yesterday or what the Gamecocks are going to do this season. Not much. <laughs> Won't take you a long time to think about that one. He's saying, I want you to engage. I want you to think. Come on, think. That's one of the hardest things in the world to do is to get a congregation to think. It's easy to entertain them. It's easy to get a laugh. I just got one. It didn't take a great deal of talent for that. But to get you to think, whoa, is that difficult. And before people can be saved, someone must be sent. Someone must preach. And someone must hear. Someone must hear. You see, it's impossible to be saved. Listen, let me tell you. You'll never be saved until you listen. Till you really listen. Till you listen deeply. Till you listen deeper than your mind. Till you listen with your heart and your soul. Till you listen as if your life depended on it. Because listen to me, it does. Your soul depends upon you listening to myself or whomever it is that's sent to preach to you. And people don't listen. Some can't listen. Three old guys were on the parking lot. One of them said, boy, it's windy today. His buddy said, I thought it was Thursday. And the other one said, I'm thirsty too. Let's go get something to drink. People don't listen. They hear half-heartedly. You heard that radio spot. I like this spot that's on the radio now. It's trying to get people to buckle their seatbelt. And a little girl, you can picture a teenager sitting in the back of the car, and the dad is talking. She's not paying attention. She's playing on her phone. And finally, in, exa in exasperation, after he's tried two or three things, he says, I just friended your boyfriend on Facebook. Oh, boy, she comes to attention then, huh? And so in the same way, you know, the preacher preaches. But uh, are you listening? Deep listening. 
listening to the message, to the proclamation of the gospel, whether it's your friend talking to you about it or whether it's the pastor or whether it's the, uh, a book or a track that you're reading, but you're seeking to understand this because you know if you don't really engage your mind and get your mind around it, you can't be saved. It's listening with a desire to understand the truth, not half-hearted listening. And so many times in America today, you could apply this to everything. We've stopped listening. We're distracted. We're thinking of other things. I never will forget something. It makes my heart heavy as I stand here this morning. I, don't, I've preached, I think I've told the story once. I think I've told the staff about it a number of times. I go back 20, 25 years ago, a long time. A young woman made an appointment and came to the office to talk to me. Beautiful young woman, probably 19 years old at that time, 20, something like that. She said, I need to talk to you about a matter, a family matter. And I said, okay, I'll be glad to talk to you. She comes in. She'd grown up in this church. Her parents raised her here, and they, did, they came very, very regularly. I mean, they were Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night people. She had gone through Florence Christian most of her educational experience, maybe not the whole way, but probably seven, eight years she had spent in our school. She began to talk to me about her problem. And somewhere in the early in that conversation, I picked up the fact that some of the things she was saying were inconsistent with Christianity and with salvation, with a biblical worldview. So I began to probe her, and I asked her about salvation. And she gave me a terrible answer. It wasn't even in the ballpark. And then I would ask another question, and after a few minutes, I thought, this girl is totally ignorant of everything that we believe, everything we've stood for, everything I've preached. At first, I felt this defeated. I thought, how could anybody sit under my preaching for this many years and know as little as she knows? I felt guilty. I felt like a failure. I thought, I know I can communicate better than that. Other people don't have any problem. What is going on with this woman? And she sat under seven or eight years of Florence Christian School. She's memorized Scripture. She's had to pass Bible tests. How could she be such a blank slate and not understand the most basic things about the faith as I'm trying to talk to her? And then it occurred to me, it really wasn't me. She didn't listen. I don't know if it was preoccupation or distraction or just total disinterest, but she sat right in these pews and didn't know one thing. She had never gotten her mind around the whole thing of what the Christian faith is about. We've made much this year the sower. We're getting ready to erect a statue of the sower from Matthew 13. And boy, I've studied that over and over. I want to preach on another time or two here before we come to our anniversary day. 
And you know the story of the sower. We've gone over it. And there are four kinds of ground. The sower goes forth and sows, and he throws out the seed representing the gospel, representing the word of God. He broadcasts it. He's not planting it in little neat rows. He's broadcasting it across the field. The field is the world. The Bible interprets the parable for you. And the sower then throws out the seed. It's good seed, same seed on all the ground. And the first is the wayside seed. It's the seed on the roadbed. It lays on the road where, where men's feet have trod and trampled down and packed the ground and so hard. And Jesus said, the birds come and pick the seed up. It never even penetrates the ground. And then he says, the sower sowed again. And this time it's rocky ground. And the ground, it doesn't mean there's a lot of little rocks in the ground. It means that there's a layer of rock, and then there's this thin layer of soil over it, and it dries out, and so there's not any moisture, and it dries up, and the seed dies because the sun is burned up. It's consumed. And then there's the thorny ground. All these different weeds and thorns and so on growing in the ground. And he throws the seed, and the seed that lights there doesn't come up either. It's not fruitful because there's too much competition. There's too many things going on. There's too much busyness in the soil. And so there's no fruit again. And the whole point of the sower is to explain why that as we do our best to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ... Some people can't even remember by lunch today what the sermon was about. Satan has come and plucked it. And some other people have heard it, and they have a superficial, maybe emotional reaction to it, but then they forget it. It doesn't really sprout. And then there are the people who there's just too much going on in their life. I'm too busy right now. I'm distracted by other things, Pastor. And then there's one other kind of soil, the good soil. And the seed falls into it. And it sprouts. And it brings forth life. And it brings forth different degrees of fruit. All of it is not the same even then. But there's fruit. There's life. There's reality. You see, before people can be saved, somebody's got to be sent are you and I available? We're the sent ones. Somebody must preach the message of good news. People must hear everybody that you talk to is not going to be saved. Many of them are going to block it. They're not going to hear. So Jesus said over and over, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Look in your Bible in verse 17. It tells you how important it is. Now, don't miss this today, folks. Hear. <laughs> I want you to hear. Verse 17. Faith cometh by hearing. And if you don't listen, you can't be saved. You've got to take it seriously. You've got to listen as if your life depended on it because it does. There's a fourth step then. 
Before anybody can be saved, someone must be sent. Someone must preach. Someone must hear, and then someone must believe in verse number 14. Now, you can't believe, see, if you don't hear. You can't believe until you understand. The gospel first has to penetrate the mind. There has to be a grasping of the facts that Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. There's got to be intellectual understanding, belief. But then the Bible doesn't just limit it to the mind. If you will look in chapter 10 and verse number 9, this very familiar verse, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, notice it doesn't say your head. Now, in the, old, in the Bible, the heart refers to the entire inner man. It refers to your will, your choices. It refers to your emotions that you positively accept a fact, even with joy. The heart in the Bible means the mind and the emotions and the will. It means the whole soul, the whole being of man. And so to believe means that you, you believe not only with your mind and your brain, you believe as well with your heart. Heart means, that, as Dabo Sweeney says, that you're all in. It's more than just grasping facts. Millions of people in America today can say, oh, yeah, I know, I know you're you get saved if you believe that Jesus died on the cross and all that stuff. They know the facts. But boy, their lives wouldn't reveal that they have anything, to, any knowledge at all of true salvation in Jesus Christ. Belief requires understanding with the heart, with the entire being. It has to do with the idea of unconditional trust. Ceasing to believe that there's anything else that has anything to do with my salvation and relying on nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe. It means, as I've told you, you can give the gospel in eight words. Christ died for my sins and rose again. But it's not just knowing those eight words. It's believing that depending upon that, relying upon that with my entire inner being, with all that I have. I'm all in. Somebody said, well, this passage doesn't mention repentance, Pastor. You can't believe like I just described and, and still hold on to your sins. It certainly implies repentance if it doesn't say it. Now, look in verse 10. Continue with me reading. And it's with the heart that man believeth unto righteousness. Stop. Not the head. It's not your intellectual knowledge that you pick up in Sunday school or you learn somewhere along the line in life that's going to help you to live a righteous life. The transformation comes from believing with your entire being. It's more than passing the Bible quiz. It's more than checking the block. I went to church on Sunday. It is an engagement of the whole soul, everything that you are internally, that you believe unto righteousness. Someone, before people can be saved, someone must be sent. Someone must preach, proclaim. Someone must hear. Someone must believe. Then someone must call. Verse number 13, that wonderful verse. And whosoever shall call, 
upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I was watching a hiker, a movie on TV. And it was a hiker, and he was lost in the mountains. And he would walk, and he'd see, you know, they put the time projection out there like this went on for two or three days. And now he's disheveled, and he's hungry, and he's thirsty, and his clothes have been torn, and his face is filthy, and he's been, he's been wandering, lost for days in the mountains. And he walks on, stumbling through the brush. He cups his hands. Help! Help! Every few moments, he cups his hands and he cries out for help. And you listen to his voice, and the actor portrayed it so beautifully. There was urgency in his voice. It was almost a sob. Help! There was desperation in his voice, like a drowning man. I have no hope if somebody doesn't come and rescue me and help me and find me. And I watched that, and I thought, boy, there's a sermon illustration. I wrote it down so I could share it with you because, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid that's what's missing. We don't have the urgency, and we don't have the desperation. People have heard it in South Carolina. They've heard it in America. But you don't sense they're on the verge of a sob. You don't sense there's desperation. If I am not helped by someone other than myself, I have no hope. That's what Paul says when he says, call. I was talking to a preacher buddy this week on the phone. He said, boy, I heard something the other day. I can't get it out of my mind. Bill, I just want to call you and tell you about it. I said, what was it? He said, oh, you're going to use this. I'm using it. He said, I heard an evangelist say this. You don't have to go to heaven. Stop and think about it. God's not going to coerce you into heaven. You don't have to go to heaven. On the other hand, you don't have to go to hell. But here's the part I like. You don't have to go to heaven, and you don't have to go to hell. But you can't stay here. You can't stay here. So you don't have to make a choice. And if you don't call, there's no salvation. Before people can be saved, somebody has to be sent. Somebody has to preach. Someone has to hear. Really hear. Someone has to believe. And someone has to call. And here's the good news. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall, not maybe, not hope, not guess, not think, not feel, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, what does it say? Shall, not maybe, shall be saved.
And I promise you today, ladies and gentlemen, based on the authority of the Word of God, if you call on the Lord in sincerity and genuineness, with that urgency, that desperation, with that knowledge that Christ died for your sins and rose again, if you call on the Lord, I want to tell you, He will save you. I've never met or heard of anybody anywhere at any time in any place who sincerely, repentantly called upon the Lord Jesus Christ and he wasn't saved. And if I ever met a person like that, I would close my Bible, walk out of the pulpit, and never preach again. But the promise of Jesus Christ here is ironclad. If you'll call on him, he'll give you eternal life. Bow your head with me in prayer, please.